Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book, New Testament. Or if you have a Bible app, we use the ESV Bible app. Thanks, Matt. Um, And so we're going to look at a a story in the book of Luke today. Also, you'll have the the Bible behind me on the Sky Bible, so that will will take care of your needs if you don't have a physical copy in front of you. So let me ask this question. I'm going to ask a question to begin our series, our four-week series uh, at our church. It's called Love Thy Neighbor. Generally, we, we, um, we teach through a book of the Bible, so we'll start at the beginning and go to the end. But over these next four weeks, we're going to take four different stories in the New Testament and learn from them, specifically how Jesus interacted with people who were different than he was. That's our goal. And so the opening question for you is, when is the last time you sat down and had a constructive conversation with someone you disagreed with? And it can't be to someone you're married, like because you have to do that. Someone outside of your home, when is the last time you sat down and had a constructive conversation with someone you disagreed with? When is the last time you went out of your way to support or care for someone you consider an enemy? Someone you disagree with, someone you think is ignorant or evil because of the way they think or live or act. You see, I think part of the problem that we have as people is that we're generally not good neighbors. We should challenge ourselves, specifically the church should challenge ourselves to be better neighbors and love our neighbor. I would say most people live their lives being, you know, surrounding themselves by people who they're attracted to, who look like them, talk like them, vote like them, eat like them, so on and so on and so on. That's generally how we tend to group ourselves. It's comfortable and it's safe. And then all the other people are supposed to stand over there. And in fact, now there's not just disagreements in the world. Now we're enemies if you're not together. So that's what we're going to be challenged with today. I think our world is, is telling people to act in this kind of way. Or you're a Christian and you go to church? Cool. You're over here with us. Stay away from all those people who don't. Or you're an atheist. You don't believe in God. You don't go to church? Okay, that's cool. Stay away from all that God talk. Don't go over there because they're going to try to get you to go to church. Stay away from them. Oh, you're white? Yeah, okay. You're over here. You're black, brown, light brown, or any shade of not white? You belong over here. You voted Republican? Oh, right, yeah, you belong with these people over here. Oh, you vote Democrat? Okay, you belong over here. Oh, you're like the Green Party? You're way over there, okay? Something like that. You celebrate Thanksgiving Day? Right, you're with us. You're over here. Oh, oh, I see. You celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. You're way over there. That's your group over there. You believe Judge Kavanaugh? Oh, you're wicked. You belong over there. Oh, you believe Dr. Ford and her testimony? Oh, right, your group's over here. I think we could go on and on with that. All all morning, we could just think of ways that we are told to stay away from other people. We could go on and on and on. It's like we're back in elementary school picking dodgeball teams. You all remember that? It was like strong kids who grew beards in sixth grades over there, right? And all others over here. Right? And then there were the skinny kids who got picked last, but it didn't matter because they'd get hit first anyway. Right? That was my group. That's just like we're like picking dodgeball teams all over again. I would say before we puff up with judgment against one another, we must first understand that the scariest thing in the world today and the scariest thing that has always existed in the world is not the people who don't agree with us who are outside of us. The scariest person in the world is yourself. The scariest person in this world 
is you. And before we take our cues from the world around us of how we're supposed to interact and talk, I think we need to slow down and realize that the enemy isn't across the aisle. The enemy is right here. It starts with me. Because as the church, as Christians, we're supposed to remember who we serve. We're supposed to remember who our God is and who he interacted with and how he interacted with people. And we're not supposed to take cues from the world. We're supposed to take our cues from them. The scariest person in your life is you. But be encouraged. God has given us the ability to live with not a spirit of hatred towards one another, but a spirit of peace towards one another, even in the middle of extreme differences or disagreements. That's what the church is called to. So over the next four weeks, we're going to focus on how we are to love thy neighbor. That's That's the Bible phrase, love thy neighbor. More specifically, we will learn from Jesus and what he said and how he practiced loving his neighbors. I hope it'll challenge us on how we are to be interacting with one another, how do we be treating one another, how we're to be talking about people that we don't like or don't agree with, and more specifically, how we're to be merciful towards one another. So I, I hope and I have prayed that God would reveal to us as the church and to us as, as Christians that our need for a deeper, more secure relationship with Jesus. That's really the goal if you're a Christian, a deeper and more secure relationship with Jesus. That's what I hope the Bible challenges us as we go through this four-part series. And it's because it's only a, a relationship with Jesus where you're a Christian or not Christian. Our church tends to have both types of people every single Sunday. We want to be a place where everyone is welcome and no one is perfect. And we started this church specifically so people who have never gone to church, don't have experience with the church, don't know even how to open a Bible or what's in it, would feel welcome here and that God would speak to them. That's why this church exists, okay? That's why this is the first Sunday we went to two services, We had a service at 9 a.m., now we have a service at 1045. So it's an exciting time for our church. We want to open up more seats for people to come in and hear the good news. But it is only a relationship with Jesus that will transform your heart, which will then transform your relationships, will then will transform your home, and then your community, and then our state, and then our nation. Like all of that all starts with a relationship with Jesus. A better world for today, and we would pray a better world for our children in the next generation. So I, I do not plan to be intentionally offensive to anyone. So even if I started and said, oh, you're a Christian, or oh, you're not, you see how the list got a little more tense <laughs> and everybody's eyes got a little bit more focused on me, like, what's he gonna say next? That's not my intention. But you can see how the layers of layers of, of groups that are out there looking at the other group saying, I can't believe you're that wicked. We can go on and on with this. It's a much needed message. So I don't, plan to be intentionally offensive, but I do need you to know that the Bible is offensive. In fact, it's it's offensive to all cultures. That's actually why we know it's actually from God. No one culture wrote this because it's supposed to equally offend every single person who reads it anywhere on the globe because it's God's word. It's written to us. Therefore, it's going to offend every single human that picks it up. It's going to challenge every single human that picks it up. So you see, the Bible is offensive to every culture everywhere. Okay, so let's start reading in Luke chapter 10, verses 25. I'm going to read a story called The Good Samaritan. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've heard of a a nonprofit called Good Samaritan. Like the word is used. We know that word. This is where um, a lot of people get their their agenda for what they start because of this story here. Okay, so let me read it. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. So this is a lawyer talking to Jesus saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And he said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from the Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, the guy half dead, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, down that road. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So here's the question from Jesus. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus' reply, you go and do likewise. Here's the big idea this morning that I I think the the Bible is trying to tell us. There's, There's one main transformative idea to every story, every verse in the Bible. There's one transformative reason it was written. And that is, it's, it's spelled out right there in the verses, if you want to receive eternal life, if you want to go on to receive eternal life, you must love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Those are the requirements in God's laws. That's what God says. If you want to go to a place where God is going to be when your eyes shut for the last time, that is the demands placed on you. And Jesus talks us through a story as an example of how those two commandments are supposed to be fulfilled. And so the setting is pretty basic. Jesus is approached by a man. He's a lawyer. He knows what the Bible says. That's actually what he practices is the law of God. That's what his job was to do. Help people figure out how they are to live and interact with what God has said in his law. And so he poses a question, and this happened a lot. A lot of people wanted to trip Jesus up so they could say he was wrong, so they could say he was blaspheming, so they could say he was a heretic, and then he could be arrested and tried and murdered, which eventually did happen. But this, they were always coming to Jesus, people who knew the Bible, to test him to see what he was going to teach about that exact same topic. And so a man come, Jesus says, do whatever God told you to do in the law. You know the law. If you want eternal life, you tell me. What does it say? The guy repeats, Love God with everything that I am and love my neighbor as myself. And so Jesus, it's a simple, simple response. Go and do it. You've answered correctly. Like everything that you're telling me, you already know what the demands are. Now at this point, the lawyer can't really drop it. And so he responds like he's got the first one covered, which I think is really funny. He's going to love God perfectly with his whole person. That's not what he brings up as a question, is it? He doesn't ask a, question, a clarifying question about that, but his pride does get the best of him. And because the real reason he asked the question to Jesus was to try to get Jesus to teach something different than what his law teaches, the lawyer asks him to expound a bit more on the second part. He asks, who is my neighbor? 
Like specifically, who are you talking about? Who's my neighbor? And this is where it gets pretty good because most certainly the lawyer thought Jesus would have said, well, um, I don't mean to treat you kind of stupid like, but you have a Jewish law and so you're supposed to love your Jewish neighbor. See, I think that's what he was hoping Jesus would say. Well, what law do you practice? Jewish law. Are you a Jew man? Are you a Jewish man? Yeah. Okay, love your Jewish neighbor. That's not what Jesus says. That's not the answer he gets. Jesus didn't say, well, if you want to inherit eternal life, love God and love only those who also love the same God as you and you will inherit eternal life. That's not what he said. Or if you want to inherit eternal life, love God with everything and then love those who look like you, who eat like you, who vote like you, who live near you, who raise their children the same as you. Right? It's always those other people's kids, right? That's not what Jesus said. He did not say, love whoever loves you. Love whoever also loves the stuff you love. He said, love your neighbor. Jesus, the Savior of the world, has not come, did not come on a rescue mission to put his stamp of approval upon your sinful desire to look down on those who are not like you. It's not what he did. You will not read that in this Bible. There is no justification of what Jesus did to say, you should act the exact way you're acting today because that's what I want for you. That's not in here. It's not how it is. The Savior of the world came to us and rescue us so he could save us from that sinful desire to look down upon others who are not like us. That's why he came. And so we should not look down to others as followers of Jesus Christ, but we should look up to Jesus and his glory. We should look up to him, not down on others. Our homes, our places of work, our neighborhoods, our cities, The next generation will only become more unified only when the church starts to love neighbors as themselves. You see, this is what the church is called to. Nobody else in this world wants to do this. Now, there's plenty of organizations who say, if we do this, this will promote promote unity. If we do this, it'll highlight the disunity, which is all good and fine. There's nothing wrong with those organizations, but they have zero foundation for why they're doing it. See, the church is supposed to be that foundation. We're supposed to be the leaders in loving our neighbors as just as much as we love ourselves. So let's get back to the sort of story that Jesus says. So after the guy says, who's my neighbor? Jesus doesn't say, well, duh, everyone. He gives a story. He tells us a story. You see, the lawyer's question and Jesus' answer don't quite match up. And that's the point. This man, this lawyer, wants to know who counts as his neighbor. He's trying to get very specific. See, for him, God is the God of Israel, and therefore, his neighbors are Jewish. That's what he's thinking right now. People who are like him, who worship like him, who eat like him, who don't not eat like him. Like, everybody in his community is supposed to be his neighbor. But for Jesus, let me get this clear, but for Jesus, Israel's God is the God for the whole world. And a neighbor is anyone who is in need. That's the story. This Jewish man was so just pigeonholed and who the God was supposed to be there. But for Jesus, he shows up and says, yes, God spoke to the Jews long ago, but I am for everyone. That's my point of coming to the earth. So Jesus But for Jesus, Israel's God is the God for the whole world, and a neighbor is anyone who is in need, and anyone who does not look like you, or talk like you, or spend their money like you, or vote like you, or work like you, or worship like you, 
or raise their kids like you, or make plans like you, or travel like you. We can go on and on and on. And if we were to stop right now and consider, if that's what Jesus is saying, am I, have I, do I love my neighbor as much as I love myself? Is that true of my life today? Do I take time to reach out to those who have nothing in common with me? And do I love people who are openly opposed or openly hostile to what I believe and how I live? What do I think of them? Do I see them as a neighbor? Or do I see them as an enemy? How would we answer those questions in our life? That's, that's the introspective part of today. How would, you, how would you understand and answer these questions that you're being asked by this story? Because when I was putting this message together, I actually know how I'd answer these questions. And I didn't like my answers. <laughs> they were not good ones. So you're not alone, okay? I didn't like my answers. So Jesus tells a story. It's a parable. Now, I, need, I do need to tell you, this story didn't actually happen. This is not a real story. It's a story he told to get across a point. But the setting, the circumstances, the characters, they're all real. They all did exist. The lawyer who initially asks the question about eternal life would have understood this. Jesus is telling a story. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background of the story. This road as described in what Jesus said, was the main passageway between two cities. It connected two cities. It's like a 15-mile stretch of road. Somebody went, went from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 15-mile journey. However, Jericho was 900 feet below sea level. So you're traveling about 3,500 feet down, okay, in elevation as you go, which made it really easy. You know, it, it, was, it was a lot of hills, a lot of cliffs. It made it really easy, easy for robbers to hide out. It was a well-known fact that if you traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho, you may run into some trouble. Thieves would hide, you know. And so, so as we read the character, he, he fell victim to these thieves. He fell victim to being robbed on the road. He was beaten and he lays half dead on the road. And after Jesus describes the circumstances of this half-dead man in the road, he immediately gives a bit of hope. Because in the story, what comes next? A Jewish priest is coming along. Thank goodness. Someone is going to come and help me. This is like the best possible situation. The priest was a man who offered the sacrifice for sinners. He was the standard of mature spiritual person. There was hope. Certainly this guy is going to stop and he's going to help the person half-dead. You know, this is the man required to follow the whole law. Let me read you one of those laws. The stranger, that's what the Bible says, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you. View the stranger the same way to view your own people, and you shall love him as yourself. For we were all once aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the lawyer's going, oh, a priest is going to show up? Well, he's going to do what he needs to do. He's supposed to love everybody, even if he's not like him. He was the most mature Christian, the one whom people looked up to. But this hope is so short-lived because he passes on by. He keeps walking. Now, this may be because there's also a law that says the priests are not to touch dead stuff, right? That's in there. If they touch dead stuff and make them unclean, they couldn't do their job. But just so we're clear, I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making. This is simply a story about someone who should have stopped and they didn't. That's the point. Even to, like, even to really get at this priest a little more, there's a verse in the Old Testament that said that, that, that people were to rescue an enemy's donkey if it wandered off. 
or if it collapsed under the load it was carrying. Certainly this priest would have thought saving a man is much more important or as important at least than saving an animal. But he passes on by. Story continues, but don't worry, all hope is not lost. There's another man. Yeah, another guy associated with the law. He's called the Levite. He could be called the scribe. He's part of the religious system. Someone who has knowledge of God's law and how it works, he also passes by. And we can stop here and we can think about this. And let me make this point. Both the priest and the scribe were leaders in the religious community, yet they disqualified themselves from eternal life because they did not love God by keeping his commandments. And they did not love their neighbor since they both passed an opportunity to demonstrate that love. Right away, the story goes bad because the, the lawyer's question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points out two religious people who should know that answer and who live that answer, and they just disqualified themselves because they passed on by because they got the second one wrong. This is where the story takes an unexpected turn. An unexpected neighbor, as we say, is also traveling along the road. And unlike the other two men, he stops. He shows compassion to the man who was robbed and who was beaten. It started with compassion. Very, very convicting to me. Should be convicting to you. When you, when you interact with people who are not like you, if they are half dead and needing mercy, or even if they're alive and well, but just are an enemy because they do things different or would think different, do you even start with compassion at all? Or is it anger and judgment right away? I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of actually not leading with compassion. I'm guilty of that. But this is a good story because it takes an unexpected turn. The friend who shows compassion is labeled a Samaritan. He's the good Samaritan. So I'm, I'm not going to take time today, but believe me when I tell you that the hatred and animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was very, very, very to the 10th degree deep. Very deep. It has lasted for centuries. And it actually lasts, it's alive today over the Middle East. The hatred between these two groups. The descendants of these two groups still hate each other today, as did they hate each other in the Bible. This man was hardly expected to help the dying man. In fact, maybe the lawyer was like, oh, he's going to finish the job. <laughs> that Samaritan, you can't trust him. He's probably just going to kill the guy. And that's not what happens. Because Jesus makes the Samaritan man the hero in the story. So let's see what he does. Samaritan stops. Okay, He begins to love the man as himself. Um, we cannot stress this enough. Loving, yourself, loving your neighbor just as much as you love yourself, will require you to, to give to others at the same level you give to yourself. Now that is heavy. To truly love your neighbor will require you to take care of, sacrifice for, give to others who need mercy just as much as you're doing that for yourself. This man started with compassion. He felt sad. He grieved. He felt sympathy. Then he bandaged up his wounds, possibly maybe having to tear his own clothes to make those bandages. We don't know what was on the dead man. Certainly, if he was laying half dead, he wouldn't want to use those clothes for bandages. So maybe the good Samaritan's got some stuff of his own he's using. Maybe he's ripping his own cloak. He's going to bandage this guy up. He uses his own oil, it says, that would use to sanitize some wounds, possibly ease some pain. 
but he doesn't stop there. He puts the man on his own donkey. He brings him to the Motel 6, right? He brings him to the local inn, probably rated as like a two-star accommodation at best. You need to know that. No Wi-Fi. There's not even cable. It's still dirty. But then he leaves enough money for this man to, to care for him and to feed this man for that day. Now, I think all of us actually we wouldn't mind doing that for someone. I think generally most people, if you see someone down and out laying half dead, and if you had the means, and if we had the time, that's a whole nother message. If we had all that time, I think we would say, yeah, I would do that. I could see myself helping. In fact, I probably have done that. Right, I, I think we all would desire to do that. But this is where it just gets crazy. Going above and beyond, and then he leaves money. He leaves the credit card at the desk. So the, the amount that he leaves and says, with that amount, if you need any other money, just pay for it, and I'll pay you back when I get back. Use all this. If you need more, I'm going to give it back to you. This is between three weeks and two months worth of money to feed and support this guy. That's how much this is. Between three weeks and two months of money to feed him, protect him, heal him, all of that. Kids are having fun today. And then the final promise. If you need more spend it. Just spend it. You need more than two months worth of money? You need six months? Just go ahead and use it, whatever you need. I will pay you when I come back. The generosity of this man who has, was a known enemy to those who were receiving the story, to those around Jesus listening, is a perfect picture of what it's like to love someone and care for someone in the exact same way that you would love or care for yourself. So then we can fast forward to the last two verses of the story, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? That is the question from Jesus. And so the lawyer responds, the one who has shown him mercy, of course. I mean, how could you say anything else? The guy couldn't say, yeah, the priest, he was the best one. He left. It couldn't be the Levite. He passed by. It's quite clear that Jesus was saying, this is the guy you need to see as the hero. That's the one he says, that's the neighbor. And so Jesus responds and says, go and do likewise. Now, because every story in the Bible, everything that is written is is, uh, for our transformation. It's for the spirit of God to convict us and rebuke us and encourage us. It's all there for a reason. This story's main point, the reason it was written, I, I want this to be clear, it's our big idea, Okay. It's our big idea, but I want it to be clear. I'm going to state it again. Because as we go to apply this to our life now, as we take this story and say, okay, what does this mean for me today? 2018, Kalamazoo Portage, what am I supposed to do? As a follower of Jesus Christ, what am I supposed to do if I don't follow Jesus and I'm not a Christian? What is this telling me? There are some things for that. But overall, the one main point this was written is to prove to us that you cannot, nobody can and never has been able to fully obey the law, laws and demands of God. You see, I don't tell you those two greatest commandments, and Jesus didn't say those two greatest commandments as like going, try harder. Yeah, you love those two commandments? Man, they're the hardest ones ever, aren't they? I know, they come from God. They're so hard. But just keep trying. You'll get there one day. That's not why it's written. This story is written to prove to us our inability to follow the demands of God. We are not able, I don't care your level of faith, I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus, you cannot do do, do these two commandments perfectly. And you never have done them perfectly. 
So let's do the first point of application. There's only two. And the way I divided it up was like the believer, the Christian, or the non-Christian, the non-believer. Those who follow Jesus and as their Lord and Savior have put their faith and trust in him and those who haven't. There's always both groups in this church. This is why we love what we do, what we do. We get to interact with a community of people who don't really quite understand yet. And that's okay. This is the place for you if you're in that spot. This is the perfect place for you to be. So I'm going to use the term mercy. Because you have, if you're a Christian, you have received mercy from God. So to the Christian, to the one who has received mercy, because you owed a debt to God because of your sin, and he didn't make you pay it, he made Jesus pay it. That's why you have received mercy. To that person, to you, here's what the story's telling you. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Show mercy. And if you struggle with that, and if, not like you struggle with it like, yeah, I didn't make the time. Oh, you're right. I should have acted on opportunity. But if you were actively opposed in your heart and mind to actually want to do that, you have to ask yourself, have I received mercy at all? Because like in the Lord's Prayer that we read, to those who are forgiven will also forgive others. To those who have received mercy are going to naturally want to be merciful towards others. That's what the Spirit of God that indwells your life does for you. He puts you to work on his behalf to be merciful in this world. So if you're a Christian, I can even back up. There's two things. Number one, think about if you actually have received mercy, if you don't desire to do any of this that was just said. But number two, would you please remember that you are unable to fulfill this demand? You're unable to. So the salvation that you now live in was not done because you did these two things perfectly. It was done because Jesus did it perfectly on your behalf for you. Does that make sense? That's why you're saved. But then the second part, it's it should help us to be merciful towards others. That's what it should do. To those who are forgiven, to those who have been shown mercy, they will show mercy. Think about all the groups that I started the message with. All those little groups who are going in their corners right now and then just pointing to the others like they're the number one enemy of the current world system. How do we as a church fit into that? Are we supposed to figure out where we go and just pick a side and still like follow Jesus at the same time? Maybe. Are we supposed to go to our corner and pick a side and say, well, I follow Jesus, but I want to be this, I want to be that? I don't know the answers. We're all passionate about different things. The point is, is the church showing mercy to the people on the other side of the aisle? We cannot actively make enemies. We must be actively pursuing unity. And the church must lead. Those outside of the church, the world, those who not call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, they're going to act this way. I acted this way before God saved me. So did you. Remember, you're not here and as a Christian day because you were like this amazing person God had to have on, your, on his team, okay? Like that wasn't it. God has saved us from acting in this way. In our world, you actually could say the world is the way it is today because the church has failed at this. That's an indictment on us. We must get better. But number two, for the person who has not received mercy, for the person who says, yeah, I... I don't know, I've been coming to church for a little bit. I've probably been going to church my whole life, but I'm not really following Jesus. I mean, I learned, I know a lot about him. I'm kind of like the priest and leave it. Like I knew everything, but I didn't love people how I'm supposed to love people because I've never received that love. I have yet to give my life to Jesus Christ. I have yet to ask for his forgiveness. I have yet to live by the Spirit. 
I need you to know that just as we saw the, scri- the, the Levite and the priest, they passed by. They could not fully obey these commands, and either can you. So you should not hear from me this morning that you need to do these things or God is going to blow you up when you walk outside that door. That's not going to happen. Nobody here, nobody around the world who calls himself a Christian actually has fully done these things on their own. This story is here to point us to the very fact that we cannot do this, which is the whole reason Jesus showed up in the first place. We must continuously and perfectly satisfy, satisfy these two commandments by loving God and loving our neighbor. And if we were to satisfy the demands of God, I mean, that is such a huge burden. But this story is a great, great example about how to act. But it's also a great reason showing us, showing us that we are the man half beaten and robbed, left for dead on the road. We are that man. That's us. And the person we once thought was our enemy, Jesus, is the one who gave all of himself so we could be healed and raised up. Church, I want you to know that you didn't earn your salvation. You never have, you never could. Friend, future Christian, because I know God's going to do a work in your life. That's what I pray for. You can't earn God's love, so stop trying. That's the whole reason we do everything around Jesus. I'm just a little taller of you up here, but it's not even about me. It's all about Jesus at this church. You cannot fulfill the demands of God. That's why Jesus did it for you. We need to admit our inability to save ourselves and seek a relationship with Jesus, the one who gave all of himself so we could be saved. If you think about the end of the story as we wrap up, Jesus, God in the flesh, so God put on flesh, put on skin, and walked around the earth. He stood before a man who asked, how do I get to heaven? That was his question, right? How do I get eternal life? That's the question that some man asked the face of God. And there's nothing in the story that indicates that man did anything about it. You can actually almost assume that the man walked away. That should crush us. That should break our heart. That he stared God in the face and did nothing. And he didn't say, you're right, I can't follow those demands. You're right, I can't do it. Jesus, how does that work? I've been trying to do this my whole life. I'm a lawyer, man. I get it. But for you, I want that to be what you're asking right now. I want you to realize, wait, if I have to follow those two commandments to get to heaven, and I know I can't, then what's the good news? Here's the good news, that Jesus Christ went up on a cross, died for you in your place because you owed God a debt, and then he was raised from the dead to prove he was God, and he was perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice, which means that was God's plan for you. That was God's plan for you. God never planned for you to follow everything perfectly. He planned for you to show yourself, like, and to have the Bible show you, you can't do it perfectly. But, oh, wait, from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world were even in place, I knew you, I knew you would be alive, and this time, and this day, and my sacrifice is for you as well. He, this is not his plan B. Jesus is not plan B for God. Jesus is plan A, and he had you in mind, which is why you're here hearing this message today. So that the Spirit of God would show you, I love you enough that although you can't fill my demands, I'm still going to take one for you. That's what the story is about. So will you be the lawyer and walk away? Or would you look up to Jesus and say, 
I just realized that I've been trying my whole life for God. I just realized I've been doing everything in my life so God would shine down on me or bless me, whatever the term we want, and it's never worked out. Friends, it hasn't worked out because you haven't trusted the one who is perfect in your place for you. May that be what you do today. Respond to God's good news by confessing your sin to him and saying, I can't do it. Would you save me? A lot of places in the Bible, people believed in what the Bible said about Jesus or what the people who were preaching about Jesus said, and they were saved. It's not a 12-step process. You seek forgiveness of your sin. You trust that Jesus was in your place for your sin, and you will be saved and reach eternal life. You will see God face to face. How will you respond?